0: Everyone, welcome back to another episode on Stealth Bay. I'm your host, Harry Tahim. To recap our last podcast, episode one, we had Angela Marafino. Join us, who shared her cybersecurity journey and experience as she starts out on her career. So, if you're starting off your cybersecurity career and you'd like to get some more information about, you know, what are some things that you can do to to help you on that journey of your, you know, your own journey there, visit StealthBay.com, check out our podcast section, and hit up episode one. There's definitely some good information there, and I uh, hope you enjoy it. So, for today's podcast. I get a lot of questions related to the cybersecurity world related to cars. People will always come by and say, hey, Harry, are smart cars safe? Can they be hacked? So I thought it was a great topic to, to really talk about and discuss. Got a really cool, amazing guest here today that's really knowledgeable in this, in this world. I'd like to introduce Kamel Galli who is a automotive cybersecurity architect at White Motion. Kamel, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Harry. You're too kind. The words, they're they're too much. I don't deserve this much. I'm just the guy. I'm just the guy, really. Hey, you're the guy that knows this stuff. This world for me is like a whole different world, and I think it's it's so cool that you get to you know really understand it better. So it's it's nice that you know you're here willing to share um, some good information with everyone. So that kind of leads me to the first question: Are you an actual car fan, or is this like more of just you like the cybersecurity, the technical side of it?
1: Okay, so. This is going to be very interesting thing for me to answer. So I actually I'm originally from Michigan in the United States. I was born and raised in Michigan. I went to school in Michigan, went to university in Michigan. And if you study engineering in Michigan, that's kind of this like underlying expectation that you're going to join the automotive industry at some point. Right. Personally, I did not want to join the automotive industry. I got into college and I was like, all right, I'm going to study computer engineering. But I was originally thinking of going into the medical field, I was thinking of doing a major, you know, major in computer engineering, and then maybe applying to med school as well, you know, taking pre med stuff, because I originally wanted to work in, you know, robotic prosthetics, that was the original kind of, uh, you know, career path I had in mind when I got into university. I I landed in cybersecurity for automotive uh, in in a rather strange way, but I originally did not want to work with cars. I expressly did not want to work in the automotive industry. And it's because I've never really been like a huge car guy. Like I wasn't one of those guys who enjoyed spending hours checking out his car and doing donuts in the parking lot with all his friends, right? This is like a, if you've ever been to, I don't suppose you have, but if you ever go to Dearborn in the United States, right, you can find it like the middle of the night it's like you know crowds of like young dudes and all their friends they just go into a parking lot and i will just blast music and like drive circles it's like I don't find that enjoyable at all I've never liked that I don't know why but it's it's just the thing people like you know who like cars like to do and it's never really been my thing. So I got into this industry kind of on accident because I had studied Japanese as my uh, humanities supplement to my engineering degree, right? You know, even in engineering they'll ask you to know, study history or language or something because we need you to be a decently well-rounded individual when you leave, you know, and go into society. And so I studied Japanese and I had the opportunity to intern with a Japanese company that was doing automotive cybersecurity. It was actually a startup back in like 20, 2016, 2017. This is, this is a while ago. So the automotive security industry was still very new. And so like a lot of the players in the scene at that time were startups because it was it was really out
0: there to be you know focusing on this very niche industry sector. And that's kind of, that's kind of how I got into it. I'm, I'm kind of how it happened. Yeah, that's a cool journey. That's a cool journey to hear. I feel I feel like a lot of people get into this, this field almost like through accident or, you know, something kind of happens. And then they're like, oh, this field exists. I should check it out. What was life like? Because you're talking about being in the States earlier. So how did that kind of play to moving to, because I think you moved to Japan now. So how did that kind of work out? And, and what was that journey like?
1: Yeah. So I am currently in Japan, as you mentioned, you know, I work for white motion. It's a Japanese, you know, a Japan based company. That's a subsidiary of a larger automotive supplier. So I had, you know, I mentioned before that I had studied Japanese language in the past. And part of that studying, I actually studied in Japan for a couple of summers, like very short summer programs, uh, you know, just studying, you know, intensive Japanese language study. So for me, the language wasn't a huge issue because, you know, luckily I was already pretty familiar with it. uh, And I had small bit of experience actually living in Japan for short periods of time, like a month or two months at a time. Uh, so as, as far as like the day to day life stuff, things were, were, were pretty easy for me when I did move here. I moved here uh, in February of 2020 before the pandemic kind of kicked off and you know I might have been like one of like the last 200 people to move to the country before things kind of like closed for the time being. It was a very last like very like Girigiri giri is the word in Japanese, it means like like very like narrow, like so close to the deadline kind of thing. Uh, so But moving here is, is, is actually, a, I won't sugarcoat it, it's quite difficult because kind of the societal systems in place here are mostly designed around Japanese people. So, like for example, like opening a bank account or even renting an apartment, the way that these kind of systems go, these processes go, is based around the expectation that you're a Japanese person and that you grew up as a Japanese person. So there's like expectations like, okay, your family lives in Japan, you grew up in Japan. So when you're going to rent an apartment, uh, they expect, okay, you should already have a Japanese bank account. Makes sense. It's a reasonable thing to assume. They, they, they need to know that, that you can pay for the, the rent. Uh, but when you wanna to go to open a Japanese bank account and what do they ask you? All right, well, what's your address? Wait, well, hold on a second. <laughs> now I'm stuck in a circle. Like I don't have an address because I need a bank account rent right an apartment because you see, you see how that how that works so it's definitely quite challenging uh there are there are like companies that specialize in you know kind of hassle-free renting to foreigners and you know people immigrating so it's usually not a bad idea to go with one of those in the beginning and then once you have like a you know the bare minimum kind of record uh on paper that you've lived in japan in one of these areas for a while then you can kind of transition to a more traditional you know living situation but it, it is rather difficult but you know the the people here are very nice i quite like the way life is here i don't own a car i actually like I said, I don't like cars, right? I don't like driving. So the fact that I can get anywhere I want just with trains and like the very high quality public transportation is something I've really enjoyed about Japan.
0: Oh, that's nice to hear. Yeah, I, it's a place I still want to visit. You know, like like you brought up a lot of cool things about that place and, and the cultural di- differences is, is like a big, big factor there. And a lot of cool stuff. I think if you are into like anime and, and all of that stuff, like Pokemon and all that. That's like- <laughs> I've, got my, I've got my Larvitar plushie that I got from the Pokemon Center in Shibuya.
1: Uh, it's just like a downtown Tokyo so this is one of my he was so soft I had to buy him so but yeah I, I do I do quite like Pokemon
0: yeah that's why it's, it's a fun place I definitely want to check it out so definitely how did uh COVID like affect Japan and, and you in particular there because I know a lot of people you know had to work from home was it do you find it any different in Japan compared to maybe having friends in the states where maybe they went to something different so that's a great question so I think that and even among, you know, foreigners living
1: in Japan, my experience with it might have been a little bit different. And that's because while my company is technically it was managed you know, and owned by by Japanese, there's like, you know, Japanese company culture is like kind of like a, a thing that people know is like kind of toxic that they, they have like some some like very, uh, I want to I want to call them outdated kind of ideals for how employees should behave like you're expected to stay you know, three or four hours of overtime every week and not get paid for it. Uh, but my company actually isn't like that. My company, despite being you know managed by Japanese people, it's it's run very similar to to an American company. Uh, the subsidiary I work for, and so we always had a rather flexible work from home kind of situation where if we wanted to, you know, at least you know maybe two days a week we could work from home even before the pandemic started because you know at just to some extent like if you're doing you know analysis of like a firmware dump I don't need to be in the office I have a computer here I can do it here right we we had a very generous like work from home policy to begin with uh, but when the pandemic hit that just kind of got kind of cemented in so these days you know, now we're pretty late into the pandemic, uh, but I at least go to the office twice a week still. Uh, that's just because I, I like to go to the office to kind of see my coworkers, you know, and uh, especially if we have like actual devices we're working on, you have to be there for those. You can't just take them home with you because uh, everyone needs to work on them. But I think that as far as the number of COVID-related deaths that Japan experienced is quite a bit Lower than uh, some some of the other countries in the world. Uh, unfortunately, on the vaccination side of things, Japan has uh, been very slow. So only until very recently have vaccinations become available. Right, I actually <laughs> I went home for vacation uh, in May, went back to the United States, and I stayed for about a month, uh, and that's when I got my vaccinations. Right, because like I was not going to wait around to get them in Japan because like it's it's still kind of a, an awkward process, and they're not vaccinating as many people. Uh, as as it would be ideal but it's kind of offset by like i said that you know that general culture of of you know public health awareness and public health consciousness you know restrictions i still have to if i if i leave the country and come back i'm not allowed to leave my house for two weeks right they they install an app on my phone and they'll, they'll they'll track my location and call me once a day to make sure i'm staying home like they will video call me once a day to make sure i haven't gone anywhere uh, so the government's been very
0: uh, proactive in some ways and a little bit slow in, uh, in other ways yeah, that's going to be the big thing. I think how countries start getting, you know, well, the vaccination rate up. I know some countries have it are pretty low. In North America, it's starting to get better. I know in Canada here, it's it's gotten quite significantly better. I think the states are still trying to catch up, but it'll be interesting to see how that kind of plays out around the world. And you know, when we start traveling all over again. Yeah, that's definitely kind of the big. When we reach a certain, you know, level of vaccination worldwide, maybe international travel might be a you know a safe prospect again
1: hopefully soon
0: yeah definitely so uh, here's here's an interesting question i haven't actually gone to defcon or any of these conferences just yet i'm hoping maybe next year i was hoping be uh 2020 until COVID hit and then i was like all right well that plan's gone so it'll probably be next year i'm hoping if things you know settle down a bit more but i know from what I understand, you've been to DEF CON a few times. I believe you've even done some challenges where you got to hack some cars and I think even won, won a prize for uh, So what was that process like? Cause that's pretty cool to, to go there and, you know, be able to hack vehicles. And, and so, yeah, I want to know more about that experience.
1: Yeah, so the the DEF CON car hacking village. So the car hacking village, I should explain, first of all, it's this uh, it's this organization run by a couple of car hackers. Now, no, no this, actually, I need to give, give some background information here. So the automotive cybersecurity industry is a thing, okay? But the car hacking community is an entirely different thing. And these two like communities or industries almost exist like they're, they're like two sides of the same coin. But they're very different because the car hacking community has existed for a long time. I'm talking like maybe as far as 20 years back, people have understood that they can reflash the firmware on their ECUs. They can make changes to the stuff to unlock uh, performance enhancements or you know additional features that might have been locked behind a you know an OEM paywall otherwise by just tinkering with the actual computers inside their car these people have been around for a long time and they have some of the most in-depth knowledge of automotive systems but the industry itself didn't have this cybersecurity awareness until about 2015 which is when the uh archetypal car hack research was published this is the 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 Jeep hack the most famous you know automotive security in- incident I call it an incident but it was white hat research Right, they didn't do this maliciously. They they publicly, you know, they, they brought this to the OEMs' attention and had it, you know, rectified properly. They didn't, you know, sell it on the black market because this is like you could assassinate anyone riding a jeep with this technology, kind of thing. So until that happened, the automotive industry didn't have security as a priority. But car hacking had been a thing for a long time in the sense that people could change their own cars. And that's kind of where the Car Hacking Village's roots are. It's not so much in the formal industry side of things, as much as it is like the hobbyist kind of grassroots organization. And so the Car Hacking Village at DEFCON, they participate in conferences all over the world. So not only DEFCON, of course, but also Black Hat, uh, I think I believe they do trainings for automotive cybersecurity. Uh, there's a conference series called Hack, Hack in the Box. I believe it's called yeah hitb they do conferences in, in singapore and the the arabian peninsula and stuff usually i've been to a uh, one car hacking village there uh, in 2019 and that the basically they like to bring you know representation for the automotive security industry teach people about the technologies used in vehicles you know you've got the different in-vehicle networks these are technologies that you wouldn't find outside of a vehicle environment so the car hacking village is this place where experts in the area can kind of share this information with people who might not be as familiar with the automotive you know, industry and the different Parts of, of of an ECU, like an electronic control unit, or the different networks being used, it just helps share technology. You know, awareness of these technologies used, and specifically in the automotive context. Now, DEFCON is usually their biggest conference every year. I've been to the in-person DEFCON three times now. I believe 2017, 2018, 2019. Of course, 2020 was done virtually. Uh, so I was um, on the support staff. Actually, I'm, I'm friends with the guys who run the thing. Right. That's why, like, I I don't compete in the CTFs anymore. I did in 2018. In 2019, I believe, they, because that's one of the things that they do. The Car Hacking Village runs a CTF every year, and they usually have a really nice prize. So the prize in 2019 was actually a, a Tesla Model 3. Right, that, that's kind of like what they're giving away—a Tesla. The, the the thing is, you know, the kind of the catch was throughout the duration of the event, people would be participating. Like you, like they would run like a lottery, like a, a wheel, you know, like hour or so, right? Like a kind of like one of those like Wheel of Fortune things. And you you pick out you know a name out of a hat and then you'd spin the wheel and you'd land on some kind of punishment for the car. One of these punishments, for example, was hit the car with a sledgehammer, right? So so we actually like and and the, the owner of the village, he was serious, like you're not allowed to hold back just because you think you're gonna win the car doesn't mean you can just hold back on it. You're gonna break this thing because I don't want this car to be like sitting in a parking lot and like you no know, nice. I want it to be hacked. I'm giving you a car, but I want you to hack it. I want you to like show me that you're gonna do something interesting with this car. So hit that car with a sledgehammer stay away from the windshield right (laughs) that's kind of kinda kind of the way it was and and so the fun part about you know, vehicle related CTFs is that they have so many different aspects to them because a car is to so many different technologies, you got Bluetooth, you've got Wi Fi, you've got in vehicle networks. So there's this physical aspect to it, that's not really there. When you think about things like, uh, you know, hack the box, CTFs, uh, where that you can just do through a computer, mostly to do the network, you know, through software, there's a lot of actual physical stuff, too. So you need to have like, okay, radio hacking equipment. So I'm talking about things like, uh, like a Wi Fi sniffer, right? Like, a, I don't have one on me right now. but like like a a dongle I can use monitor mode or something because you need to like okay sniff the the SSID of this thing right or something so there's a lot more going on than a traditional you know just IP network based CTF or something right just because a car has so much in it so you actually have to you actually have to prepare quite a bit you have to bring your own hardware to use right so and some of this hardware can get expensive because it's like you know if you especially if you're using industry grade stuff there are usually cheap alternatives but the good stuff will be like locked behind uh, industry grade hardware with like a software license to run it. it it can get kind of kind of hard but i i i did um get second place with my team in 2018 uh we won a uh is that like an atv like an terrain vehicle Like <laughs> we we ended up giving you know i didn't have any use for it we just kind of like gave it to one of our members and he just kind of like paid us like you know a fraction of the, the price for you know we all got like a cut of the price for the va- total value of the thing and then in 2019 uh, we actually won first place i think i have my ctf team t-shirt still somewhere in my closet Uh, but that was definitely one of like the high points of my uh my 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 time in the industry It's like man i actually won something like hello (laughs) like what (laughs) yeah it was so much fun really and so but nowadays i don't i prefer to actually help out behind the scenes i've given a couple of talks at the car hacking village Uh, last year i did two based around like car hacking 101 where i kind of explained I gave a quick introduction talk to what an in-vehicle network is, the different types of in-vehicle networks in use in vehicles today. Uh, and then I talked about Bluetooth in automotive motor security and, and some other uh, wireless technologies. Bluetooth is actually uh, a particular technology I have a kind of a special interest in when it comes to my own work. I, I'm the Bluetooth guy at work, like and within like our team of engineers you know, I have things I'm good at
0: and I have things that I suck at. Bluetooth is, is kind of one of them I, I try and take a leading role in. I actually I remember that year because I, I remember seeing the news that hey so, uh, a bunch of people hack yeah hacked a Tesla or something and if they can hack it they can take it home so that's kind of that's kind of cool to hear you know people were able to actually do that so so I think the the event you're referencing there is the the pwn
1: to own i believe that's actually run in canada i've personally never been to that before one of the members of my team who, who we won the uh the challenge with in 2019 uh he's actually canadian he lives in uh, quebec i believe he uh he's a regular attendee of the point to own i believe i think he might have won once or twice but they definitely had a tesla available at the point to own one of those years and um i think that they ended up getting you know root access on the vehicle through a browser vulnerability Uh, i i think so i want to say that was how they did it they had a browser browser vulnerability that worked on this car and they were able to kind of pivot from there into the actual car system so it's
0: been a while so i don't
1: remember all the details exactly but
0: yeah that that, that's kind of my worry about how people uh people get in i think we'll discuss that later on that you know that big way to get into one of these vehicles i think so if uh, I know this question might be for uh, people that want to get into the industry. A lot of people always ask, "Hey, like how do I even get into this industry? There's no usually there's not training out there for it, like specific training." So there might be someone that's like a general, you know, security analyst or some other part of security and it's like, "How do I how do I pivot to this other area?" So are there certain courses you know of or things that you've learned or can share with people to say, "Hey, this is how you can kind of maybe get into this world?" I definitely agree with you. There is kind of a a lack of training for automotive
1: security in in the market. I know there are a lot of, you know, training programs for traditional cybersecurity practices. I've actually been doing some traditional security studying myself because I entered the uh, the industry kind of through the back door. A lot of people start in general cybersecurity and then kind of pivot to automotive. I kind of just started in automotive cybersecurity and like I've been trying to, you know, increase my capabilities and, and my proficiencies in traditional cybersecurity recently. So I've been like studying hopefully to take my, my OSCP someday, uh, hopefully get that. But you're definitely right. There, there There's a, a lack of, you know, accessible automotive cybersecurity and car hacking training for example my company we provide car hacking training to uh, industry or government or law enforcement entities uh, usually we'll do it like a class for a week like a five day training period where we'll have some you know instruction followed by some actual hands-on car hacking that we'll do uh, with some vehicles usually provided by the customer but if you're looking for something that you can kind of like buy online like you go on like udemy or something and just find like car hacking training yeah good luck and then the reason for that is because well, how, how, how do I teach you how to hack a car if, if you don't have a you know a car with you <laughs> like, like, what are you supposed to do? So there are people who come out with like software modules or even some like hardware based like practice modules. Uh, I have a friend who's in, in Europe uh, on Twitter, his, uh, his name is, is MintyNet, right? He, he kind of developed this, this like platform that's a, uh, it's, it's a car in a box. Right? And he's kind of like made the, the, the schematics for this thing open source. So you could technically put one of these together if you wanted to have this like or learning platform. For automotive security research but as far as things that are you know a little bit more accessible don't require that much like investment to actually like hardware building and stuff of course you know if, if you if you do to like learn as an individual uh, i would recommend resources like the car hacking village that i mentioned before uh if you attend defcon or something they usually post all the talks on youtube afterwards anyway right so you can just watch some car hacking village talks from the last couple of years of defcon you might find one or two by me too uh, so if you do uh, leave a comment i saw him on the podcast with harry right but like you can also join the asrg actually this is another good one asrg the the acronym stands for automotive security research group it's this international uh organization that is dedicated to making access to automotive cybersecurity information kind of barrier free less hassle right it's not like one of these like High class industry only pay to enter three thousand dollar yearly subscription fee societies. It's this like it's it's low. It's it's a global organization that's like managed locally in every chapter. I'm currently the uh, the head of the Japan chapter. We only have one chapter in Japan. It's based out of Tokyo. To be fair, I started it when I got here, and then the pandemic happened, so we have never had any in person meetings. But the way we used to do this in Detroit, and I was a member of the board, uh, the organization board in the Detroit chapter of the ASRG. Every month we would have everyone get together. If we'd had like uh, an industry sponsor like buy pizza for everyone or something, just like food, drinks, refreshments, just kind of everyone sit around. We have a couple of people present. They could present on some research they've done or about some topic, like maybe like an upcoming standard they think everyone should know about, a different technology they wanna share. Maybe you built a tool and you wanna share it with everyone. All these things are part of what ASRG is. And there's this huge library of videos, these recordings of, you know, the in-person recordings, you know, for for actual video recordings of in-person, presentations and talks done and then you know more recently the the webinar series that that we've been doing uh, we've tried to keep things running, even though we don't have you know the ability to meet in person anymore for safety reasons. Uh, but we do have regular webinars at ASRG. If you just want to learn about the industry, ASRG is a great place to start. You've got you know introductory courses. You know I've done a couple where I even teach you a little bit. Like you want to learn how to use a canvas, I'll teach you the very basics of a canvas. You want to learn how to plug in and just with free software, just learn how to look at the data. Like understanding it is a different story, but if you at least you just want to look at the data and be able to see it, I've got one on there. Well, I'll teach you how to do that. It's it's a, it's a great resource, especially for getting started. And, and then from there, of course, you can kind of if you if you need more advanced like hands on training, uh, it's not as easy to get your hands on a hands on training package as an individual. Usually, like if you're an organization, you can, you know, of course, contract with like my company we will do it for you or there, there are a lot of providers of car hacking training, um, but it's usually uh, kind of expensive. Like It's it, it'll usually running like a thousand dollars per person per day is kind of like the, the standard pricing model in, in the industry. So I know like, obviously like I'm not the only company, my company isn't the only ones that do it. Uh, there are others in the industry as well that do this kind of stuff. So if you want that hands-on guided hacking practice or training, you know, you how to use the tools, tools, me, yada, yada, yada. That's kind of the route you gotta go though.
0: So that was called Car Village Hacking? Car Hacking Village. Okay, definitely, yeah, definitely we'll check that out. That, that's cool to know that there's some resources at least out there to, to learn more about this field. So I wanted to discuss a few attacks that we've seen on on vehicles so there's one that i've been hearing about and i think it's happening well it seemed to happen a lot locally and, and from the attack type that i've heard it's re- basically called a relay attack from what i gather uh, from my end it's basically you've got uh, maybe two cyber cyber criminals one guy's you know next to a vehicle one guy's next to let's say the home and they're basically trying to create a communication or a s- strong communication between the car and the key fob to to trick the car into thinking hey the key fob is actually right next to the car or very close to it so all your doors open up these guys get in the car hit the start button and take off so have you seen a lot of these have you seen more of these attacks or heard about them and are they something that's starting to become you know sort of more in the news now yeah so this
1: uh problem kind of arose from keyless entry systems and like these you know these smart car systems where the car could detect oh hey my owner is right next to me i should unlock the doors right so like it's it's good in practice and it's really convenient and it's really cool Uh, but but honestly this is very interesting because this exact attack right is the first common example of automotive cybersecurity, or rather car hacking, being exploited for our crime, right? You remember when I talked about the Jeep hack, you know, in the past, I said it was, you know, done in a white hat environment. It was done not for the purpose of stealing anything or causing harm to anyone. It was done for research purposes and to raise awareness of these issues in this vehicle, right, it was benevolently, you know, released. Whereas what you're talking about here, these relay attacks, people trying, people actually stealing cars by abusing weaknesses in the cybersecurity architecture of the vehicle. What they're doing essentially is, you know, obviously, you know, if I have my, my, my key fob or something and I'm close enough to my car, the car can detect like a kind of a passive signal that the key fob sends out and I'll say, oh, hey, he's within three feet of me. Come on, unlock my doors as a courtesy. Great. But what if I have a device that I can use to pick up that small signal and then rebroadcast it, but like way stronger and make it so it's like, 20, 30 feet away, maybe. Right. I don't know how exactly how far these guys stand. Like you said, there's usually one guy near the car to open the door when it gets the signal. And one guy trying to like fish for this. And I've seen like a video, right? You get like one guy he takes his backpack and like holds it up next to the wall. What he's doing, he's hoping that when you got home, you took your keys, right? I don't have any keys on me right now. And you put them somewhere near the door or near the wall where he can possibly, you know, if he's reading the, you know, that frequency that you're broadcasting, the that the key is broadcasting the message on, he can possibly pick it up and if he can pick it up he can rebroadcast it at a higher power and then the car will read it and it'll be like hey okay i hear the signal i'm gonna unlock the doors right that's how it goes uh and, and so it's kind of a it's, a it's an attack on the physical properties of this key right it's it's broadcasting this this, this signal and if you can pick it up and re- retransmit it the car doesn't know how far away it is it just expects okay normally this signal can only be detected from three or four feet away so if i can hear this signal i can assume that whoever's holding this key is. 3 or 4 feet away and I'm going to unlock the doors right uh but you know that they're they're abusing the fact that there are no there, there there's no like like check in place to make sure that okay the key is actually there there's no like I'm not, I'm going to lie I'm not going to know exactly how you solve this problem off you know off you know off off the dome But like you'd have something like a okay well maybe the car could do like a check on the the actual time it took to receive that signal and kind of maybe send the signal back and just judge based on that time it took to receive the signal maybe base the actual distance based on the physical properties the time it took for that signal to get there you know like the ttl use that to figure out how close or how far away you are yeah something like that but there's nothing like that on on the cars you see getting stolen like that and so you have these thieves using these high-tech methods to steal cars and essentially that's the first way that Car hacking is being weaponized against you know innocent people. You're using you know this technology for evil. You're using it to to steal something. And of course, uh, you know in the future the theoretical things are more like like I, like I mentioned like like God forbid like assassination through hacking a car and just disabling the brakes and all. Dang, he crashed. That's a shame. I wonder why that happened. Right.
0: I've seen it in the news. I'm assuming they take the cars and probably ship them off to some other country and and sell them there there is one thing i saw that was kind of unique there was one car i don't remember the brand name now they had it where you could i, I guess the car unlocks when you walk by but to start the car you had to actually had to put the keep up in a certain spot or in some kind of area and then you could start the car so it's almost like you needed that you needed it physically there as well so i don't know if that's a way to stop it as well or or not but i thought that was kind of interesting when i when i saw that once on a car
1: yeah, that's definitely a big part of it is, you know, eliminating single points of failure, right? You have this set up where you need at least, you know, two checks. Of course, there are, there, there was another bit of research that was actually published on Tesla's, uh, I think, last year by a guy named uh, Leonard Wooters, right, where he was able to, he, he kind of combined two vulnerabilities into a Tesla stealing package. Right? He, he, he's not a bad guy. He, he he discloses to Tesla properly, right? He's a, he's a white hat guy, right? very good guy. Essentially, he, he exploited one Bluetooth vulnerability to make a copy of the Tesla key fob, right? Long story short, he copied the Tesla key fob using a Bluetooth vulnerability, and then he could use that uh, exploit to unlock the car. Once he was in the car, he had to use a different vulnerability to tell the car to recognize a different key that he had bought as its own key. So he kind of combined two separate vulnerabilities into this steal a car in 15 minutes package, not even five minutes more like more like 5 minutes, right? Steal a car in 5 minutes package. Because, you know, once he got into the car, different attack routes were available to him. He's able to pull the panel on the Model X plug something into the actual vehicle network. And through a vulnerability in there, he's able to rewrite the firmware of some devices inside the Tesla and force it to recognize his counterfeit key that he brought with him as the real key. So it's never going, to, it's it's very rarely going to, because cars are complex systems, you're very rarely going to have one single exploit that leads to full total control of the vehicle. And that's, you know, one one of the, I guess, like, blessings in disguise of the complexity of the automobile is that it's hard to take control of a car. It's not easy. Like, oh, cars can be hacked. There's no security. Well, yes, but, like, very few people have, like, the the expertise to properly exploit vulnerabilities in all these different types of systems because embedded systems are usually very weird, right? You don't have like, a, like an easy like cookbook of ways to just take control of this thing, right? It's it's not easy work. And so on the very, you know, on the bright side of the automotive, you know, security, uh, you know, situation, at least it's hard. Right? At least it's hard, right? Like no script kitty is taking control of a car. that's that's not happening right like it's not happening so it's 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 one of the one of one of the benefits of of the the difficulty of the stuff but then you have actually sorry for circling back but the issue with like the things about the key fobs people would make these devices that just had, so some engineer figures out how to, you know, replicate key fob codes for all these different cars. He takes that knowledge and he makes a device, puts all that stuff into the device and he sells that device commercially. You want to buy this? $30,000. You can steal any car you want now. That's the problem, right? You get people commercializing this kind of cybercrime? You get, oh, I'm selling it for research purposes. Sure you are. Okay. Yeah. You know who's buying this. You know what they want to do with it stuff it, it yeah it was i there, there was definitely at least one or two devices on the market that would um they, they were designed for this they were designed to copy key fob signals for different makes and models of vehicles
0: and they were being sold commercially it's like i think they've stopped now but like come on you're not fooling anybody Like well that's interesting to know wow i've seen i remember hearing something back in the day with like it was similar to a garage door opener someone had like codes for almost all of them so it's kind of interesting to see someone have this for for vehicles now too. How about uh other devices? For example, let's say mobile phones. There's, you know, a type of attack people are starting to see where they're saying the mobile device now almost becomes a, a way in almost, right? Cuz it's going to connect to the car. If it has some kind of malware it can transfer to the vehicle a- and also the other way. If there's malware in the car, it can go into the uh, into the mobile device and hack the mobile device. Have you seen mobile devices being sort of a weak point in security with uh, with cars now? So uh, I'm gonna be upfront, right? I'm not an expert in mobile device security, right? So
1: I, I personally have not worked on it myself, but I have read in the past about you know things like they're usually linked to the OEMs kind of backend server infrastructure, right? So like you have like like these different you know like Ford Connect, I think is is the Ford one. I'm just. Kind of guessing so if i'm wrong please don't crucify me in the comments i just don't remember the actual names <laughs> of the services but they all have more or less the same kind of service where you know the car is connected to a back-end server that back-end server offers you know gps or maybe even like you know mobile data like you know cars can be used as like wi-fi hotspots nowadays right your car will have an actual sim card inside it and it can get data you can watch youtube or whatever when you're in your car just connect to that car's hotspot uh, and it's like you're in your house with wi-fi you know. With restrictions, of course. And your app is usually going to be connected to that server, depending on like, you know, there's there's a a huge like need for making sure you carefully manage privileges uh, for these apps, right? Because like, if you think about like the Tesla app, okay, I can summon my car through this Tesla app, right? I can tell my car, hey, it's raining. I don't want to walk through the parking lot. Come around and let me, you know, slide in real quick. Okay, sure. Sounds great. But what if that app is not, you know, properly secured? What if somebody else can call my car? Right. Like so the, the extent to which these mobile devices can affect the vehicle itself is going to depend on how much privilege it has and to you know what extent the functionality of the uh the device can control it, right? Because the Tesla app you can also use it to lock your cars, right? So everything in the app is possible, you have to consider, okay, if this app is not secure, everything this app can be done by the you know actual owner might be able to be done by a hacker who has, you know, found a way to spoof uh you know the actual app that the the original owner has with their registration and le- like I said I'm I'm not a an explicit expert in mobile security uh um, mobile device security so uh that's that's kind of like the, the extent that my knowledge goes but it is definitely an area of research and these mobile apps do need to be uh, explored too there's also the um the inclusion of things like uh Apple CarPlay and Android Auto that actually lets you link your phone directly to the car like with a wired connection. And this is a little bit different. I mean make sure you sandbox that stuff, right? Like you don't want, you know, access to like the whole vehicle, you know, inter internals through, you know, the actual Android device or, or Apple device you plug into the car. Cause yeah, you want to see your Android device screen on your your car head unit, but you got to make sure that there- there's like the proper checks in place and separation of you know privileges. And like I said, the sandboxing to make sure that it isn't having you know,
0: direct access. Because if there is malware on your phone, that could
1: potentially lead to malware in your car. And that's bad news,
0: Barry. Yeah, I've seen bigger issues with like mobile apps that get, got, that get compromised. Uh, APIs sometimes aren't secured. And that's an easy way to get in. The other big one I've seen, I don't know if, if a lot of, I mean, you might know more about this, if a lot of vehicles have like a web portal, but I feel like that would be a big target, right? Because if there's things like MFA not on there and just a password that maybe got leaked from another site, boom, like you're in in that portal. Now you got access to that, that vehicle to do certain things that I think this is a pretty scary part to, to know about or to know that could happen.
1: Yeah. And, and definitely also that kind of that also ties back into, you know, vehicle browsers as well. Right? I mentioned in the, the Ponto and a couple of years ago, some researchers were able to pull a Tesla um, through a browser vulnerability. And because the, these these cars, they're not running entirely unique software. They use software that's available in a lot of different IOT devices, too. So if you're if you're doing like if in my own you know time penetration testing, uh, we've seen like you know head units or, or TCMs or DCMs that will have a data control module, etc. They'll have like open source software installed in these things, and that's fine. Open source software is good. It's great. It's- know it's open source it's usually pretty secure because there's a lot of people checking it but you got to make sure you're using you know up-to-date versions you got to make sure that you're not using a version of this software that's vulnerable to like a common you know high intensity you know high you know impact attack right so i'm just something comes to mind for recent memory on a test i I can't share too much of course but for sure right like the same thing you're talking about like 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 a web portal and not having you know any kind of sign in of course should have multi-factor authentication as well because if that's giving you you know, access to the actual vehicles controls, especially this is really, really troublesome. You know, make sure you check all, you know, inputs, et cetera. Make sure you don't get any strange commands being sent by malicious third parties to your car. Yeah, this this there's so much. And, and I'm not an expert in all of it, please believe me. Like I'm I don't want to paint myself as just the everything knower of automotive security. I, I do my best, but there, there's a lot. There's a lot. And I'm not an expert in,
0: in, in most of these areas, right? You brought up a good point though. So when we have, you know, all these other different types of software being used on the vehicles, are you finding they're usually up to date pretty, pretty well? Are you seeing sometimes things are kind of behind and not updated as much?
1: So this ties into the, uh, the automotive supply chain problem because the automotive industry is, uh, it's not just Ford. It's not just GM. It's not just Toyota. It's all the companies they buy their components from. And then those companies buy components from other companies. And then those companies are buying components or software or they're contracting software engineers. You know, you've got these companies that are based out of India, Vietnam. They literally just host software engineers for hire, contract coders, right? They're these very intelligent, brilliant people. And they're usually cheaper than hiring someone to do development in-house. And, and so maybe their their programming is, is great and, and it works fine from a functional perspective, but maybe they don't have, you know, the experience programming securely. Maybe they don't know like how to program according to certain secure programming guidelines, like a C, CERT, C, et cetera, right? These are like the common ones because C is very popular in the automotive industry because of the the kind of the low level usefulness it has for for embedded devices. And it comes back to the fact that like when you when you commission a device for something like a car, the car is like planned 3 years in the future when you start planning it, right? And all right, so we're going to commission this device from this tier one and this device from this tier one and this head unit from this tier one. And then tier one's like, "All right, sweet, we got an order. We're going to commission this chip or this part or this piece of software from this guy, this guy, this guy." And these things take time and they're not going to be done automatically, right? And and not everyone's going to get finished at the, at the same time. So You know, as these things kind of come together to make the whole vehicle, you realize, okay, well, this component was like finished programming, okay, two years ago. Well, it's using software versions from two years ago. Like, you got to make sure that this stuff is secure. You got to make sure someone did a check. You have to make sure that because the automotive development process takes so long, you need to make sure that you aren't including things that, okay, when we commissioned this, it was up to date and there weren't any, you know, severe vulnerabilities disclosed. You got to double check. You gotta make sure that that doesn't like carry over into the final product. Like what if you have like a severe remote code execution vulnerability on something that is like decently easy to access and this didn't exist a year ago, but it does now and no one's checking this. This is why you have to do these kind of checks regularly. And it can, it's hard because sometimes you have to go back and talk to the actual suppliers and they're not expecting this. And right now the automotive industry is in this position where they need to get everyone on the same page. And you know re- regulations and legislations. I don't know if I brought this up yet today, but the you know the United Nations has already put out a guideline, and this you know the first guideline. It's a start. It's mainly targeted at the OEMs. So the OEMs are like, all right, well now we have all the responsibility. But we're not even in charge of like half the stuff that goes into this car. Like A lot of it is, is programmed or, you know, designed by tier ones or tier twos or anywhere down the line of the of the, of the supply chain. And how do we make sure they're doing the right job, right? And so th- th- this, it's going to be, there's going to be some growing pains. I have no doubt in my mind. And as the kind of automotive cybersecurity industry gets more refined, hopefully these things get moved out.
0: Yeah, I've, see, I've seen it. Happen also with not just vehicles now. I mean, this is a whole different other topic, but like IoT devices, it's the same thing, right? You got to go to the vendor, and I personally always seen tons of outdated, you know, packages, software packages that are used, and you now have to figure out how do we get updates on this, just so just to secure them, especially when a major vulnerability comes out.
1: Uh, updates is a whole different story. <laughs> updates, <laughs> oh jeez, updates. Yeah, I mean, awesome. You know, most vehicles are. I believe Teslas are like kind of the the state-of-the-art right now for over-the-air software updates but obviously the other oems are trying to follow suit trying to have this kind of remote update ability which is crucial for for securing such highly connected vehicles quickly and making sure that they get updated before a malicious third party has a chance to act on a disclosed vulnerability but then you you introduce the risk all right you gotta make sure your updates secure firmware signatures you gotta check all that stuff you can't be installing firmware that isn't you know authorized by by the oem or the distributor you gotta make sure that you're not you know installing even worse software onto your car now you added more vulnerabilities than before oh man it's it's uh like I said, it's gonna be kind of it's kind of messy, but it has to happen, you know, and the automotive industry has been very proactive. You know, it's hard to see how big of a big of an impact this will have on actual commercial deployment of connected and autonomous vehicles because they're not really commercially deployed wide scale yet, right? They don't exist on the street yet. They they, they do in very niche environments, like research areas. You have self-driving cars, but you don't have them on the streets yet. So how do we get ready for something we can't experience right now? It's a there's a lot of you know effort going into kind of proactive framework building, and that's this is kind of the stage the industry is in is we're setting up ourselves to be ready for when things go wrong, and hopefully you know the best we can do is is try and minimize any any damage uh, when it does happen. You know, obviously when it comes to security, nothing
0: is ever hundred percent secure. It'll be a it'll good change hopefully with time as we get more smart cars out there and that actually leads me to a, a good question here for you actually would you say then should people stick to getting smart cars now as their next vehicle as as you know cars coming out or would you say you know maybe get a non smart vehicle still right now it's it's too early if you had to give some advice to someone
1: personally you know even even your your, your smartest vehicle today like the the extent to which it has like autonomous driving capabilities because that's really when you get to the position where the computer is in charge of moving the car they're still not quite to the full control no human interaction required level for the most part i'd say cars are doing much better on the security side these days i wouldn't count out all smart cars you know from a to z just because of security purposes right there's going to be an extent you have to think okay well how smart is this car it's not it's not it's not a black or white thing right because like Okay, like I said, if there's no autonomy, then obviously, you know, if there's like limited, you know, X by wire features, right, X by wire is essentially where you have the actual, you know, vehicle network controlling the thrust or the brakes or the steering of a vehicle, you know, if if there aren't those kind of capabilities, and a lot of the cars that do have those are pretty common ones, like a lot of Toyotas these days will have like lane assist, etc, that has some drive by wire and steering by wire functionality included, they're still pretty safe. For the most part and a lot of these things you know they're convenience and people like them that's why they they develop these things on the security side on the bright side like i mentioned before most of the big security news is, is revealed you know under white hat conditions and most of the people who do this like i mentioned like the car hacking community these are not criminals these are not people who want to hurt anybody these are people who do this for fun they do this because they love it and because it's, a, it's it is a very very fun industry to be in tinkering with cars is something a lot of people enjoy and these people when they find a severe vulnerability they'll usually disclose it under white hat conditions and you know i've never seen any evidence of a uh malicious automotive cyber attack you know we mentioned the the, the car theft that's about as bad as it gets right now there's no real crimes being committed based on hacking of vehicles right so i i would say that they're they're you can have a, a, a decent bit of confidence for the vehicles you buy today especially you know uh if they have like remote update capabilities like the tesla's they not, none of the research that gets published on tesla vulnerabilities is published until after tesla has already fixed it right because these people are they're, they're reporting to the to the manufacturer tesla's are very if it's not obvious they're very hot like target like everyone wants to try and hack a tesla because they're, they're, so, they're so cool they're so sexy they've got all the features this is the car of tomorrow, right? I want to hack this one. And so they're, they're like a big target. You, you, yeah, like there, there are groups in, uh, I believe out of China, they've several years in a row, they've showed that they could remotely, you know, compromise these vehicles and like cause the wings on the car to like flap up and down like a bird. It's like, what? Like, this, is, this is awesome. It's crazy. But like I said, it's mostly done. You know, the, the vast majority of this research is done, you know, without malicious intent, without the intent to weaponize it or or cause harm to anybody. So I I, th- I think you can you can have a bit of faith uh, in the automotive security industry where we're getting there.
0: Buy that nice car. I was about to say if Kamel's saying uh, it's time to buy one. All right. Tesla here I come now
1: to be fair like I said I don't like cars and I don't plan on buying another car for a long time because I I much prefer like you know working public transportation which is something I have the benefit of enjoying here in Japan but if I do move back to the United States it's not really something I can count on being part of my life anymore so I would need one but if you want my true honest opinion Fight back against the auto industry. Bring back good public transportation. <laughs> yeah, as far as you know, if you do have any, any, you know fears about vehicles, I wouldn't let cybersecurity stop you from buying the car you want. Should be okay. Probably.
0: <laughs>
1: Probably. <laughs> that doesn't sound. Very I give everyone a lot of faith right now. Yeah, <laughs> I hope I didn't ruin your plans for uh, your wife's birthday. you want gonna buy her this new 2021 Nissan. You're like. <laughs> Go the 2018 version instead. <laughs> like,
0: yep. Yep. It's safer. It's safer. <laughs> all right. Well, as we're nearing the end of our podcast, uh, I like to do a like fun rapid round uh, set of questions. So we'll be throwing out just some short, quick questions. Respond with whatever comes to your mind. There's, there's no right answer. It's just this is all just to uh, just have some fun. Sure, run it. So uh, are you ready for I've this? I got
1: my emotional support larvatar with. Me. <laughs> go
0: for it. All right. Here we go. Would you get a newer smart car or an old mechanical car from the 70s? Newer smart car. A Ferrari or a Tesla? Ferrari. Nice. Automatic or stick shift? Automatic. Oh, God. I <laughs> can't drive a stick. Actually, do they drive a lot of stick in uh, Japan or is it all automatic there as well? I
1: don't know. I don't drive here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right. Next question. Unlimited RAM or unlimited CPU cores? cpu course here's a good one say what's up dude in japanese
1: what's up dude we don't really have anything for like what's up like many like like we don't have like a what's up we have like like are you doing well that's kind of like what are you doing you're like you don't ask someone like like what are you doing like like psyche it's like that would be like what are you doing lately but like nobody actually says that it's, that's that that one's kind of a uh, Lost in translation. I'm gonna say, <laughs> sorry. What's your favorite food so far in Japan? Ooh, curry for sure. Japanese curry, yo, it's stuff is like addicting. Like it's so good. Like I'm talking, like you get some rice, you get some curry, and you get like like some like sliced up fried chicken on top. Oh, that's my favorite. Ooh, yeah, it's kind of a it's, it's a rather heavy one as far as Japanese cuisine goes because a lot a lot of it is is much more like. You know, light on the stomach, but that's my favorite for
0: sure. So have you watched the Avengers movies? Some of them. So then here's here's a question. Hopefully you might get this one. If you could obtain one of the stones, infinity stones, mm-hmm. which one would you want? Time. Easy. Nice. Same here, actually. Yeah, I picked that one too. Well, I guess this kind of answers the next question then. If you could pick unlimited time, unlimited money, which one would you pick? Unlimited time. Hello? <laughs> Stop time. Go make some more money. Like easy <laughs> what's the easiest way to double your money I, I got an answer for this one too but i want to i want to know what you get give half of it to somebody else and ask for it back that's a good one actually i, I was gonna i was gonna say just put it in front of a mirror and it looks like you got double yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay you get to attend a huge party mm-hmm. who would you take with you beyonce or kim kardashian oh beyonce last show you binge watched Ooh, invincible
1: invincible the uh the amazon uh animated show have you seen it yet i haven't seen it yet but i will check it out now you know you've got the avengers in the background if you like superheroes please watch it it's super good it's like eight episodes each one's an hour long
0: take you a day i'll check that out what is something you wish you could be good at uh post exploitation <laughs> <laughs> that's, oh, that's a good answer i
1: am I'm not very good at post exploitation. I
0: need to need to brush up on that. It's it's really one of the places I struggle with for sure. Besides Japan and USA, where else would you want to live if you could pick?
1: Singapore. I visited Singapore once in, I think, winter of 2019 for like three days. Oh, my God. It's so cool. It's like the future. It's like it got- weather's always nice. Public transportation is good. Your stuff is pretty cheap. As far as like, you know, from like if, if you're bringing dollars, it feels like everything's on sale. Oh, it's such a nice place to live. Although I have heard that like, because it's very small, you can get very kind of cramped very quickly. So it's not a great place to live as much as it is to visit. Blue team or red team? Red team, I hate development. So I, I ain't on that blue team stuff. Sorry, I'm not programming an idea, so it's not for me. <laughs> I think a lot of people pick red team. It's it's sort of like the new cool, cool hip thing to to pair. Red team is like okay, you know, if you do proper red team, there's there's a lot of work to it, but like. Red team can also be interpreted as I just break stuff and then it's not my problem. <laughs> I'm kind of on that side yes. of stuff. I know it's 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 not how you're supposed to be. Of course, you know good red teaming involves actually working with the blue team and finding ways to to kind of obviously increase the the defensive system overall. Because that's the point. It's not just to break stuff and feel awesome. Don't forget all of the fun reporting you got to do too at the end, right? That's always the best part. It's like, how do I explain to this person <laughs> that? Just because you have it IP tables on the system does not make it fully secure. What's the best Wi-Fi game you've ever seen? Best Wi-Fi game? Dearborn Pokemon Center. (laughs) Yeah, it's actually one of my friend's house
0: is Dearborn Pokemon Center. And whenever I go, I chuckle. That's awesome. All right. Our last question, what are your plans for the weekend?
1: So. These days, uh, on the weekends, I actually go into town. So I live like a little bit north of Tokyo, about about an hour north. And so I usually go into town, and I actually play video games with my friends. So uh, we play like uh, fighting games, so like two D, like you know, like Street Fighter style games. And uh, those things are you can play them online, but they're more fun in person. And so I kind of go and I hang out with my boys, and we we play fighting games together.
0: Yeah, that's always fun. I've done that with my cousins. It's like yeah, Street Fighter, Mortal Kombat, Tekken. You got some awesome games there. Nice. Awesome. Well, want to give you a shout out, Kamel, for joining us today on our podcast. It was awesome to have you here. It's actually been a pleasure to have you here and learn much more about the cybersecurity uh, world in the auto industry. So thanks for being here. No, thank you
1: so much for having me. And, you know, t- to anyone listening, if you have more questions or if I answered anything poorly or if you have criticisms for me, you said I did a sucky job. Please, I'm open to feedback right? <laughs> just hit me up on LinkedIn. I think uh, Harry should, should have it uh, linked uh, when he publishes the video, but um, I'm always happy to answer any questions if anyone else has, you know, maybe further questions or help or guidance in the industry or finding their way to uh, some resources. Just let me know. I'm, I'm always happy to share what I know.
0: Yeah, we'll definitely link out Camel's LinkedIn account there so you can reach out to him for any other questions. And I just want to thank everyone for listening. And until next time, we'll see you then.